Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How's it going? I was uh, very uh, heartbroken and upset uh, the last time I spoke to you folks, and I'll get into a little more of the Buster story, though there is a, a time issue uh, now with uh, it's going to be a little stilted because of how we're we're doing the next few shows. But before I get into that, I wanted to uh, to say that I'm very excited about my guest today in that it's Yardley Smith, who plays Lisa Simpson on The Simpsons. And, and it was a great interview, a great talk. And I didn't grow up watching The Simpsons. Of course, I love The Simpsons, but I'm not a complete Simpson nerd. But I, I was always curious to, to hear about the process and who's on it and her life. She wanted to talk. She is a fan of the show. And it was it was very uh, connected and revealing and interesting to, to, to know and learn the life behind uh, Lisa Simpson. But also on the show... We have sort of a, a big deal. It's um, we ha- we have a very special preview of an interview I did with a comedy legend, and uh, I look. I'll explain it in a minute. Let me let me get you up to speed on what's happening uh, with my emotional life in relation to my cat Buster. <laughs> I have to explain in the next few episodes because my. Uh, my uh, amazing producer and business partner, Brendan McDonald, uh, needs to take a vacation. And God knows, God knows he deserves it. It's his wife's birthday present and they're going away. And uh, I'm happy for them. But because of that, I don't want him to, uh, to have to think about anything that has to do with me or the show or anything other than relaxation and enjoying the company of his lovely wife. So, and the, and, and, Coincidentally, they're going to be someplace where they can't, uh, you know, connect to anything. So good for them. But because of that, I'm going to be recording these intros kind of on top of each other in the next few days. I'll keep you up to speed at least now and for the next episode as best I can, although much time will have passed since um, you'll hear them. But for right now, uh, we got some good numbers back with Buster, his uh his kidney numbers are going down, but the vet still did not 
sound that optimistic. I was thrilled because after three days of antibiotics and fluids, there at least was some results. It, we did an ultrasound. It, there was no blocking, but there was something there that implied either an infection, probably not cancer, uh, and uh, or, or maybe some, some sort of toxin, but uh, the kidneys are still not functioning properly at all, apparently. Like the numbers to me sounded like a tremendous uh, progress, but uh, the vet was sort of uh, cautious in getting me excited. So where it's at right now is I'm going to leave him there for a couple more days just to have the constant fluids and uh, take in the antibiotics to see if there if there's a continued decline uh, in the numbers and a continued uh, uh, functionality of his kidneys. Uh, all they really found on the ultrasound was that the kidneys were enlarged and that he had some fluid. Um, and uh, the internist did not think it was cancer, but it, it's weird with medicine, both for humans and animals, apparently. It, it's all speculative in a way, and you can only learn everything you can learn, but still not know certain things. I don't know what caused it, but whatever the case, there was progress, and uh, I'm hopeful, and I really want to thank all of you for your support and uh, the, the well-wishing. It does mean a lot to me uh, because uh, this guy is a good guy, and uh, he's, 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 a, he's, a, he's an interesting uh, little cat. Uh, he's a genius. All right, I'll say it. Buster Kitten's a fucking genius, and we need genius cats in the world. And I, I hope his progress continues, and I will keep you in the loop, though it will be a little stilted. That's, that's what I'm telling you. I'm going to go over there after I talk to you here and visit him. I'm going to go visit my cat at the hospital and try to get him to eat some food. Okay? Okay. Now, here's the deal with this. I had a chance... Uh, to interview a, a comedy legend, seriously, a comedy legend, someone, you know, that um, we, we always wanted to do the interview with him and we thought it would be a great WTF interview. The one and only Krusty the Clown. He was here in the garage for a WTF interview. And it was so revealing that everyone knew something big had to happen with this interview. So, so this Sunday, February 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox, you can see my WTF interview with Krusty on The Simpsons. It's the basis for the whole episode. I'm serious. It's called The Clown Stays in the Picture, and you'll see we really broke it wide open. But for now, for right now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play an excerpt of that interview. Basically, they had to cut some stuff for time from the episode on Sunday. So we wanted to let you hear all of it. Uh, so this is me with Krusty the Clown here in the garage. So, uh, Krusty, where did you grow up exactly? I grew up on the uh, lower east side of Springfield. Springfield. It's a very Jewish community. Massachusetts. No, no, no. Oh. It's in the state that's next to Tennessee, uh-huh. but south of Oregon. Got it. Got it. Yeah, right. A lot of Jews down there? Lots of Jews. Uh-huh. And how? Yeah. And what, what, what kind of business was your dad in? What was his racket? Well, his racket was he was a rabbi. No kidding. Rabbi Hyman Kristofsky. Oh, no kidding. Yes. Big congregation. Very, he? very big congrega- uh-huh. congregation. Uh-huh. Very conservative. Uh-huh. Brothers, Very, sisters, grew up with a lot of big family? No, no, just me, 
That was it. That was it, and my mother. Uh huh. Rachel's her name. Uh huh. And uh, and that's it. And that's what my they. My father did. wanted me to go into the business, you know. Sure, in, in the show days. Oh, into rabbi or sure to clowning. Yeah. But I uh, I didn't have the the well. This is a Yiddish made up word. Yeah. I didn't have the shmaboingi. Oh sure. Right. Something sure. Like that. So they spoke Yiddish in the home then. They did. Oh, that's some uh, of it was nonsense Yiddish. <laughs> Later like on, Jewish? I talk to people. They go. Well, Yiddish, and they would say, where the hell did you come up with that word? Right, right. So that was sort of a joke they had on you, I guess. father's joke on me. How did he feel, the rabbi, when he decided to go into clowning? Oh, he was dead set against it. Uh I had to do it on the sly. Secret clowning. Secret clowning. I would do, you know, a bris, or I would do a a bar mitzvah. (laughs) You would would jump out when your dad was doing a rabbi thing in in the clown outfit? And yeah, oh, that, God forbid I did that. Oh, never. Oh, huh. it broke his heart when yeah. he finally found out. I was at an event. It was a big rabbi convention, I sure. guess. Yeah. And I got hired, and my father was in the audience. And one of the rabbis got drunk and hit me in the face with a seltzer bottle. Sure. Well, with the water, not uh-huh. the bottle. Yeah. And it, my makeup washed off. Yeah. My father goes, Oi, Gavalt! Sure. Herschel! And uh, that was it. That was it. Yeah. Well, you disowned. Did he rip his clothing like he's? Yes, he did. He did. He rented his tuxedo, which was also rented. (laughs) He rented his rented tuxedo. Oh yeah. And then he put. He took ashes. Right. That were on the table. He. On his head, as, yeah. as if they were. Uh, I was dead. I was dead to him. It's, it's interesting that uh, it was. He had the ashes there prepared. It was an ashtray. Well, they were smoking. Oh, okay, it was okay. An ashtray. That's a terrible, uh, terribly sad story. Yeah, it was very sad. We yeah. were estranged for a long time. Uh huh. And, and then, then we were reunited. Oh yeah, right before yeah. he died, or before he died. Yes. Oh yeah. Yes, not oh. after. Oh, good. Well, good. I, I don't want to be reunited. Then I'm still want to <laughs> hang around. Yeah. Good. I, I just got to say, Krusty, I've been in this business for like 30 years, but I think about, you know, like everyone who's been an influence on me, mm-hmm. and I got to tell you, uh, you were one of the biggest. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I used to watch you perform, and then I, I wrote it all down, and I just wanted to make sure I didn't do a single thing that you did. Yeah, well, that's smart. With me, it was the opposite. I stole from everybody. Oh, one of those guys, huh? Who'd oh, you, yeah. Yeah, who'd you steal from? Oh, I stole from Jack Carter. Corbett Monica, Morty Gunty, Wow, Alan King, Phil Leeds. Yeah? You name it, I stole it. <laughs> all the all the big ones. I stole from people who looked like they were gonna be sick and die so they wouldn't sue. <laughs> yeah, but you were probably stealing from people that stole from people that stole from people. You I were probably big probably th- stole from Burt Williams, I don't know. What about Shecky Green? Shecky Oh, did I steal from Shecky? Oh, come on. <laughs> I got an ashtray with his name on it. How about in the 70s? Were you stealing in the 70s? Like oh. Lenny Schultz, Billy Braver, Sammy Shores, you steal Sammy their stuff? Sammy Shore, yeah, I stole from Sammy Shore. Well, I don't know. You don't feel bad about it? No, I mean, Sammy was very, very big about it. Very big after I paid him. <laughs> Who are some of the other people you work with, Krusty? Well, you see here, let's see, I work with... Um, Godfrey Cambridge? No, uh, I stole from him. Uh-huh. I did a lot of, you know, civil rights stuff, but it didn't go over very well. How about, uh, was it uh, Lester and Willie? Oh, yeah, well, I did steal Willie <laughs> from <laughs> he Lester. Stole the, he stole the doll? <laughs> yeah, it was a kidnapping. <laughs> did, well, did, you, did you try to do the act? Was, was, no, it, I uh, just... Krusty and Lester? I don't like, know if I stole Willie or Lester. <laughs> 
Well, one of them would probably resist. Yes. Yeah. I guess it was a guy who didn't resist. <laughs> Just laid there. So, oh, you talk about Red Fox? Red Fox. Oh, boy, do I had stories about... He was so dirty. Funny. Very funny, but yeah. dirty. I, yeah. I used to open for him. Yeah, but you know... Oh, like, I what? I couldn't say a single joke that he said on this... It's a podcast. Really? You can say, say whatever you want. Oh, yeah. Let me, let me whisper it in your ear first. Uh, the other day, uh, uh, and then uh, yeah. I said, what? Jesus. That, now that's in my head? I'll never get that out of my head. God, that is filthy. You know, you ruined donuts for me. I, I, I You ruined them. You ruined and them for me, too. I love donuts, and now, not never again. Oh, my God, oh my God Krusty. I know, I'm on blintzes now. polluted my brain. Blintzes, how are they? They good? Oh, they're great. Oh, Red Fox got another dirty story about that. Oh, Want to yeah. hear? Yeah. And this is, oi, hey, I'm And this is, ah. Oh, my God. I didn't even eat that many blintzes. Now I'm, I'm sorry for the ones I did eat. Do you want me to ruin any other food for you? Oh, with a Red Fox joke. It's a great diet. Amazing, right? How amazing was that? I, I sat with Krusty the Clown. And the rest of that interview is on The Simpsons this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox. I'm not, I'm not bullshitting you. Clearly, I mean, you heard it. You heard it fucking unreal the life i'm living it really is very grateful i'm not gonna say blessed because it's a little weird so as you're gleaning with your ears this is sort of a simpsons themed interview uh, i talked to yardley smith who is the voice of lisa and it was one of the great wtf conversations it really was and it's it's all sort of in connection with the simpsons uh in its 30th season it this is its 30th season on fox and again i am guest star on the simpsons this sunday february 17th at 8 p.m eastern on fox interviewing crusty the clown right here in the garage and yardley was nice enough to come and talk to me i love talking to her she's also the co-host of the true crime podcast small town dicks uh but uh you all know her and love her as uh lisa on the simpsons so this is me talking to Yardley Smith. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts what do you got i have a present for you oh i knew you had a lot of little things i have things 
Um, I keep building on my things. So this is a collector's item that you can't get anywhere else. About season three of The Simpsons, they put out those little pins. Yeah. Those little stick pins. Yeah. And um, I found them in a little, like, comic book store in the valley. Yeah. And I bought them all. Yeah. And (laughs) you didn't have a hookup at the. Oh, God, no. Are you kidding? (laughs) No merchandise? Oh, no. I mean, so much stuff. People go like, hey, look at this. I'm like, where the hell did you get that? <laughs> like, don't they send you that? I'm like, no, they send us nothing. Oh. And so, um, and I was so in love with it. And, and then, but there were only about 15 of them. It's a pretty great little flying Lisa. It's a little Superman Lisa. Yeah. And so I actually did an end run. I tried to get the show to make more. Yeah. And they wouldn't. And so I had more made. You did on your own? I did, which I'm, of course, not supposed to do. And uh, So <laughs> now yeah. I still have about... Oh, no. Now you're going to be in trouble. Now I'm in big trouble. <laughs> so so now, that, so you just got them because you liked them so much and you yeah. thought it was a shame that they weren't out there. Yes. Yeah. There's not a lot of Lisa merchandise out there. It's hard to come by. But she's like the uh, probably the most... Um, uh, intellectually and uh, emotionally important character. She is. I would think to the young women of the world. Yes, uh, you know, I hear that a lot. <laughs> you do? Yeah, I, from people I, who say, you got me through a hard time, or, right. you know, you hear that as I well. I do, yeah. And it's, I never, ever, ever take it for granted. I'm always surprised, and I'm always enormously grateful, A, that they would share that with me, Yeah. and B, that anything I did could have any that could have that profound an effect on someone. You don't know when you're doing it. And, and that's just, not why you do it. At least, no. I don't think you can you, you do it reverse for engineer it. Incredibly you know? selfish reasons. 100%. <laughs> and that's then, right. To fill then, that hole inside. Yeah, and exactly. And turns out you actually help somebody else fill their hole. Yeah, and you're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> Maybe even patch a hole here and Maybe. there. Maybe. Those you are know, hard to patch, though. There's a lot of triage. Yes, But, you know, patches, sure. patches are good. Yes, uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to seal a couple. Uh, sure. You know, permanent... Oh. Boy, howdy. <laughs> I'm with but, uh, you. The patching, you know, the problem with patching is if you don't if you do not do upkeep, they no, just it, come off, they rot away, yeah, and then the next do. thing you know, you're- You lose the adhesive. Yeah, and you're like, why am I here again? It's nah, still jagged. Fucking patch came yeah, off. Fucking yeah, fucking patch. Yeah. <laughs> but I would have to assume that now, like, I mean, what is this, the 30th anniversary of The Simpsons? Yes. So there, there are probably women who are like 40 who come up to you and go like, I grew up with you. Yes. Oh, all the time. <laughs> and, and a lot of, there's a lot of tears, actually. Really? Yeah, I mop up a lot of tears. And uh, they're, Where does sh- it... they're shaking. Yeah. Oh, yeah, People of course. People shake oh, when yeah. they meet you. It's, it's a little wild. It's, it is wild. Um, yeah. But actually, to your point about yeah. growing up with The Simpsons, we actually have writers who grew up watching the show, hoping that their dream job would be yeah. to write on The Simpsons. And they, I'm sure they all thought, eh, but it won't still be on by the time I'm old enough. Like, yes, we will. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be That's on right. forever. And then all the writers who started with us, or many of them, are still with us because they go out into the real world. Mm-hmm. It's a totally different, much more sort of doggy dog scenario out there where you get studio notes and yeah. network notes. Right. And James L. Brooks said when we went to half hour that we would get no studio or network notes. That was one of his And that was and he um, kept that caveats. promise. Oh yeah. And and Fox kept it, I think, because a, they thought the show would never go past the first 13 episodes. Uh-huh. And B, it's James L. Brooks. Like, 
you're not going to say no to that guy. And also, at this point, they're uh, they're going to fuck with that machine. Well, and now they <laughs> can't. Know? No, because it's literally in writing. In paper. Yeah, yeah. So the writers they go out into the world, they get you know deals at Disney or wherever uh, else, and it's it's horrible, and they all come back. So we have a massive staff for a half hour show. But, but do they do they just like do they just let them come back and say sure, and they just I throw them so. on the payroll, and it it doesn't matter. They're yeah. like happy to have everyone back. Yeah, like Mike Scully, he's he's been our showrunner. He was our showrunner way back in the day. I'm not like a, a full on Simpsons nerd. I have oh. a little distance. Well, and we just have to talk about that. You're yeah. going to be on the show. I know. And, and your episode airs on the 17th of it's, February. It's very exciting. I'm very excited. Because I actually got, we, I heard Matt yeah. Selman, who wrote that episode, yeah, yeah. who's a genius, yeah. um, sent me a fantastic little super secret snippet of you interviewing Krusty the Clown. Right. And, and yeah. all because Lisa heard the podcast. That's right. She she's, she's a fan of yours. Right. And you as you. As me, yeah, Mark Maron. Yeah, I phenomenal. am Mark Maron on The Simpsons. That's right. Is it, is it funny? Does it it's sound so like good. A, does it sound like a WTF? Yeah, it's phenomenal. <laughs> I died. I, and Dan Castellaneta, who plays Krusty, yeah, of course, is... Yeah. Um, it was... It was What was fun was you w- were both so up to the task, mm-hmm. you know? He... Uh, Dan that, is incredibly shy, but yeah. you... You get him to get behind that microphone or on stage yeah. or anything, and he really becomes he becomes that person. And I get to stand next to him when we record. Yeah. We record all together sure. like an old radio play. You do, all yeah. the time. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Except for ha- Harry doesn't record with us anymore, and Hank doesn't because they live in other places. Do they pipe in from an ISDN hookup in, in their house Kind of thing. Uh, Harry has it in his house, I believe. Uh, yeah. Um, Hank goes to a studio. Okay. But they don't pipe in while we're recording. Oh. They do their separate sessions. Right. So somebody reads for them during the recording. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We have a guy. Yeah, we have a, a guy, guy for that. But I got Dan to show. Do Do you do much improvising? I mean, oh my. That... Yes. Oh, you do. And sadly, it doesn't make it in usually because we're only a twenty-two minute show. Right. But I have to say, so I stand between Dan and I stand and Nancy Cartwright, who does Bart, right. among others, Nelson <laughs> Kearney, and uh, it never gets old. And especially Dan, who yeah. often has pages of dialogue just with himself, right. but different characters, oh, and right. he doesn't even pause. It's no, fascinating. it's remarkable. It's, it's and I could watch that all day. I've done a very limited amount of voiceover for animation, and when I see these old dudes that come in and they're just doing two or three, I'm like, that's crazy. It's crazy. It's it's but, crazy. But you do a few. I do. I do. Uh, <laughs> what? Well, I do Lisa, and then I do an old woman named Mrs. Glick. Yeah. Who they've killed off and brought back to life several times. I think just because I do it so badly, they're like, "That's still fucking bad, Yardley. We got to have some more of that." <laughs> You're entertaining themselves yes. at your expense. Yes. Because they can. One hundred percent. Yeah. So you've seen all these, a lot of these writers over the years move on. Like I, I, like I knew Dana, I know Dana Gould, mm, and yeah. uh, he's sort of a geniusy guy. Yes. And but I also know Conan, right? right? People always ask me, you know, what was Conan yeah. like when he was on the show, and I remember him being so quiet and and I think I think that unassuming. I, I, when Lauren Michaels picked him out to host, I was like, "That guy? Yeah, are you fucking kidding me?" <laughs> I, I it was the farthest. I, he's the last guy in the world I would have chosen. But I gather he was rather different in the writing room. I don't know. I think that if you if left to his 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 
real nature, he would certainly be a quiet guy sitting there because like anytime he talks, it's a lot of, yes. you know, he has to really launch. <laughs> Do, you know what I mean? It's, it's not, well said. it doesn't come easily. It's right. like, even if he's just responding yes or no, it's like, yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he has to come out of himself. Sure. To do that. Sure. That's, but I, I bet you that's true. But it's funny because his wit, the way he thinks is, it almost seems like it was a Simpson character. Like he think he thinks, like, you have to think a certain way yes. to write the comedy necessary for that show. I think that's true. To be that smart and that paced and that, you know, yeah. like, I, I don't understand. I don't. It's a I marvel. It is a marvel. But was this what, I, you were, I guess some people, maybe nobody really sets out to be a, a voice actor, do they? I guess Nancy some do. Did. Nancy. Yeah, Nancy Cartwright did. She studied um, at UCLA with a guy named Dawes Butler, who was a big voiceover guy. Um, yeah. We also have another woman on the show named Tress McNeil, who's absolutely brilliant. And she only ever did voiceover, and she does uh, Mrs. Skinner, um, but she's also been on every other cartoon you've ever heard of, yeah. like Animaniacs and My Little Pony and <laughs> Futurama yeah. and you name it. So, uh, yeah, there are uh, a few. I think it's, I will say, I think it's much harder now because you have celebrities doing all these animated films. Right. Like, I'm not a big enough name to yeah. get a starring role in those animated films. You can't get in one? Oh, no. You haven't gotten in any? No. That's ridiculous. No. I mean, they really want, and, and I guess, you know, look, live and be well. I, I think my, <laughs> the only thing I truly take exception to is yeah. this notion that when you're doing that voiceover job that you're just, you're somehow slumming it. Right. As though voiceover isn't as much being an actor as being in front of the camera. That's crazy. And I, and I think that's inaccurate. I really do. I sweat when I do voiceovers. Like you, <laughs> I, you have to lean in in a way that is is a little weird, you know, because like you you have to sort of almost uh, amplify yourself very specifically. Yes, uh, because it is all the all already audio. But there's no less heart and soul no, into your delivery yeah. than if you were being shot, you know, from the waist up. I think it's more. Because you don't have the advent of body language and stuff. But I also think the way that voice works for people just by doing it like this without any visual at all, it it cuts right into people. You know what I mean? Like people have a very personal relationship with voice. But I, I think that it must be odd to be on one of the most popular shows ever made and 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 maybe comforting not to and to be able to have a life. Yes, it is the best of both worlds <laughs> for sure. You know, you know, I get recognized quite a lot um, by Simpson fanatics. I would imagine. Yes, or people know you from some well, TV. Well, and, and I've done. I did. Yeah. I used to have a pretty robust um, on-camera career, uh, <laughs> and I look exactly the same as right. I did back, you know, thirty-five right. years ago. So uh, I get recognized for that too. Um, but but to your point, you know, paparazzi's not waiting at the bottom of my driveway. <laughs> I can go to Ralph's and, you know, although people do hug me in the produce section, there's usually just one. I don't yeah. gather a crowd, you know right, what I'm right. saying? So. <laughs> the, 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 the strange person that looks at you for 10 minutes, follows you around the yeah, store. Yeah, that does happen. Sure. But it happens, you know, what's funny is I, I, it happens more if I go someplace where they don't expect to see you. Yeah. Because they can't place you. Right, right. And they often ask me, did I, you know, did I go to sure. school with yeah. you? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Mm. No. If it was college, no, because I didn't get in. Yeah. So I know that's not true. <laughs> and if that. I've never been here and if you went to school here, then the answer is no. I mean, there's certain And you let things. them go through the, because you feel <laughs> weird. 
or because you when you volunteer that information, like I'm, I'm Lisa. From, it de- it or depends. I'm from the movie thing. I'm the- uh, I sometimes. What I learned was the yeah. hard way was that oftentimes it's a rhetorical question. So when they say, um, or if, they, if the comment is, "You look like that girl uh, on uh, from the Legend of Billie Jean," and if I would say, "I know, isn't that funny?" They actually already know that yeah, I am, right, right. and now they're mad that you won't own yeah, up yeah. to it. <laughs> so I then so you used to walk away from it. I mean, you would, oh, you would not own up to it, and then just yeah, go. and and the, but it, it wouldn't always end well. No, like, no, yeah. but you are that girl. And then you're now you're fucking like yeah, you're an idiot. Now you're, an and now you're caught. You're, yeah, now you're an asshole. So if they say you look like that girl, then I say I am that girl, and that's yeah. so is fun too because yeah. then the jaw just drops to the oh ground. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very. I mean, it's lovely. People ask me, "What is it like to be?" recognized you know when you go out in the world and i always say if i for, particularly if i go to a place that i've never been yeah people i've never met are yeah. thrilled to meet me yeah. they're so happy to see me who gets to say that it, yeah, it's great like yeah. total strangers are like oh my god it's yeah. fantastic that you're here yeah and when they stop shaking of, yeah <laughs> and and sweating and crying <laughs> and we can <laughs> It's nice. I know. I, I agree with you. It's and it's nice because with what you and I, or or however, whatever our level of celebrity is, it's probably different. But it's not a, enough to be annoying. No, it's always very nice. And I know that usually the people that approach me know me very well. Yes. Like, well, you especially. Yeah, you know, like they know things about my life. They yeah. know like the whole story. What's that like for you? Because I am not, I'm less known in that granular way. Well, I, I do respect the fact that they do have a legitimate relationship with me, and mm-hmm. I and I and and I and I think it's genuine. Yeah, it's just very one sided, and they <laughs> and they know that as well. Right. But I try to be as gracious as possible and not be a dick. I don't think I'm generally a dick. I mean, sometimes I'm misread because mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about myself, <laughs> it's a, which I guess is being a dick. But I'm not being a dick to somebody. Sure. If they get me in the middle of something, I'm like, and I'm rude. It's not because I'm like, get away from me. It's co- sort of like, sorry, I'm in panic. Well, right you now. are allowed to be a person and have a life. I mean, right, right. You know, I, I always feel like if somebody approaches me, like if people are waiting for me at baggage yeah. claim, right? Um, with your name? Yeah, no, with pictures to sign and stuff. Oh, right, right. You yeah. know, I feel like it's a little. It's that, but, th- but those aren't regular people. No, that that fr- it freaks me out a little because first of all, how do you know I was coming? I'm not this person on social yeah, media saying I'm flying from New York to Los Angeles. Right. I'll be there in five hours. Yeah, kind of person. Um, but yeah. it and I feel like yes, okay, I'll I can engage to a certain extent, but this yeah. isn't actually a public event where I'll engage all day long as long as it takes. I'm happy to do it. Right, but you know you have to draw boundaries at a certain point, and that can get it can get kind of hinky. People, but, but those guys in particular. It's always like three or four yes. doughy dudes <laughs> <laughs> of different and they sizes. Have stacks of stuff. Oh yeah, like I mean, they're there all day. How did you know? And they have yeah. you signed Lisa pictures? Oh yeah. Yeah, I, 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 that's the collector weird. It's uh, very different. E, I don't know where they're selling it. I don't either. But can I get a cut of that ten cents? Because, dude, I know me it's too. My signature, my picture. But like, I don't like. I always, I, I'm like, are you doing well with this? I, I mean, know. <laughs> Who the f- how many how many people are paying top dollar for a Mark Marin picture? That's what picture? I'm saying. Same, same. 
But have you ever seen it for sale? Like a single uh, once in a while. Uh, I'm again. I know I'm not much of an eBay troller, but I have seen I my know. and it literally is for you know two dollars or something. Right. It doesn't. Right. I mean, but, you're not going to make a lot of dough on that, dude. But how do they know? I don't know. And sometimes they say, "Oh, somebody, you know, t- tagged you in a tweet," and then I'll go back through my Nothing. feed and nobody's tagged me. And I don't know if they have, or somebody saw you get it, you know, at the gate. I'm like, who? Yeah. Was it somebody inside from the airline? Right. Was it an actual bystander? Is somebody being paid off? I just. Or or sometimes when you're doing something in their city, they know you're coming in somewhere. I don't know how they find out. I don't out, know either. But, but that, sometimes I understand that, or if it's a festival, or if it's Comic-Con, well, sure. or whatever. But that's to be expected, right? Sure. And then you're- But not just you know, visiting a friend right. in Sedona. And you, you're just coming you, back you, from yeah. that Thursday to Sunday, yeah, Jag, like, right? What is, what are you, who are you? <laughs> What's happening? What's happening? <laughs> so, where did you grow up? I grew up in Washington, D.C. Really? Were mm-hmm. your parents in politics? My father was a journalist for the Washington Post. And oh, thank he was, God for uh, the Washington Post right now. Yeah. Boy, I mean, I... Uh, yeah. There's a whole generation of journalists who thought they were going to be limited to tabloid writing right. or clickbait, and now they're <laughs> like, are you guys ready? Because there's real work to be done. There's and some in shit. It. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. 100%. Yeah. So was your dad that kind of journalist? What kind of journalist? He was, first, he was... Uh, City News. Actually, before that, he wrote for the UPI, which is United, United Press President International, National. which um, I don't know that it in exists Europe? anymore. Yes, actually in uh, Russia and Poland in the Cold War. Well, was, before you were. I was born in '64, and he was. He, I think they got there when I when in '62. I have so an older you, brother who was born in '63. So you were born in Europe. Yes, my brother was born in London, and I was born in Paris. So your dad and, was going uh, up to Russia. Yeah, in Moscow, and he I think he loved it. Yeah. You know, back in the day, they would you had to back run in, to the phone and call in your story. Sure, and then you had to get an outside line, yes. and you're in Russia, and you know someone's yes. listening to no, it. My parents talk about it. Uh, my Well, my father's dead, and my parents are divorced, but yeah. they used to talk about how they knew that in their apartments, both in Moscow and in um Poland yeah. in Warsaw that it was bugged yeah. and so if they ever had anything important to talk about and they weren't I'm sure it wasn't you know super secret politics stuff but sure. they just if they wanted any measure of privacy right. they would go into the bathroom and turn on the water and that would some- and that was I guess enough of interference that you couldn't necessarily make out the words meanwhile they got married in Moscow huh. and they they're both American and um the rush because they're both American. Yeah. The Russian embassy said, uh, "We'll let you know when you can get married." And then, literally, like on a Tuesday, they said, "You can get married Friday." So nobody could come over. First right. of all, you couldn't really just pop over yeah. to Russia. Tough like, invite. You know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I have the only one photo survived from the wedding. All the rest somehow disappeared from their luggage. Really? Yeah. They were taken. Yeah. Oh my God! So he, he they literally he, he had a place in Moscow. Yes, yes, they had an apartment, uh, both in Warsaw and in Moscow. And then um, when my mother, after I was born, so I was born in '64, and my mother says at that point she said, "I have two babies in two hands. I'm yeah. going back to the states." Right. My father traveled quite a bit, I think. Yeah. When he was uh, working, and I think it was sort of lonely and cold. And my mother is extraordinarily bright, but I'm. 
I, she said she wasn't very good at, at the Polish language. Uh-huh. And so um, I, mean, I think my father really was like, rats. Yeah. So they, we went back. Both my parents are from New York City. Uh-huh. And they, or my father from Brooklyn, rather, and my mother from Manhattan. And so we lived with my mother's parents for a year until my father found a job, and that was at the Washington Post. Wow, that seems like a, a very exciting life. So your dad spoke Polish and Russian? Uh, I don't, yes, I suppose a bit, you know. I don't, I can't even picture what Polish sounds like. I know a little, like from Yiddish here and there, it's, it's sort of part of it. Yeah. But I don't know. But so I guess it wasn't necessary to speak it at home, was it? No. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be, be kind of weird. No, yeah. <laughs> so like you're in growing up in Manhattan and like, cause you, so I'm a little older than you. So the... So it must have been kind of exciting. Was it like real Manhattan? Uh, yeah, my grandparents lived at uh, 98th and Madison, uh-huh. 96th and Madison. Uh-huh. And um, I remember- Back so, when people could have apartments in Manhattan. And they had a 50-foot hall in their apartment. You know, they had an apartment that had an actual dining room Re- yeah, and right. an actual living room. Yeah. Now, those rooms weren't huge, right? but it did have two large bedrooms and then a, like a small- bedroom which i remember was my bedroom when i would go visit were they just like middle class people or yes uh well my grandmother had some money yeah uh she was from st louis her father had been a doctor and but my like, but not crazy no no like, not crazy the only person that can live in new york now is hank azaria 100 percent. yes <laughs> and i'm sure yes and my grandfather was curator of prints at the metropolitan museum of art your grandfather was curator of prints. Yes, like uh, like acquiring prints oh, and you know making. That's a exhibits. very uh, no. They're all very exciting. fancy and intellectual. And then there's me who didn't even get into college. So <laughs> yeah, but you were surrounded by that. I was yes. What did your mom do? My mom uh, was a paper conservator at the Freer Gallery of Art, which is part of the Smithsonian. So she would repair books and pictures for exhibit. Huh. And she went to Radcliffe. And uh, such a specific odd job it is. And then my father studied history at Harvard. Huh. And after he left, uh, when I was about ten, I think, yeah, they moved him from City News to the to be the editor of the obituaries in at the Washington Post. Yeah, and it was fascinating because my father, I think, what he really loved was the long lead obits because he was a history major and he mm. loved, you know, it was like writing a biography. <laughs> yeah. he was not so good with the day to day with poor, you know, Jane and John Doe, whose yeah, yeah. spouse had died, and yeah, I think survived he, by yeah. Rrr. Yeah, Joe and Jim. Yeah, I used to hear him on the phone and you could just hear him seething. Disappointed that that he didn't have a media bit to write? I think. (laughs) And that he... Yeah, he, Why he can't a lot some of famous demons. people with a life die? <laughs> More often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what's the, why, why is there a glut of normal people <laughs> what's wrong dying with, with, with no real life? Yes. <laughs> oh. So how old were you when they got split up? 20. Oh, so. Yeah. Not as devastating as seven. No, not as devastating, but uh, messy. Oh, yeah? Yeah. We didn't have to choose who to live with, did you? No, I was gone already. I was living in New York myself. I had, I was on Broadway actually. Well, let's go back though. So, like, okay, so you're growing up with this fairly, you know, intellectual bunch, art and letters. Yes. But so what? <laughs> you, but you don't want to go to college, or you're like, I, I, you know, were you rebelling? Were you like, fuck you guys? Uh, I, I applied to Vassar, Northwestern, and Yale. That was it. Yeah. And people would say, like, why didn't you have a fallback school? I'm like, why would I want to go to a fallback school? Right. Why would I want to do that? Yeah. That's not how I'm wired. Right. 
right? And so I remember, though, from the age of about seven, wanting to be an actress and wanting to be really, really, really famous, like the most successful you could possibly be. And then I, yeah, and I started to plot this plan for world domination. So you are Lisa. And so, yes. (laughs) Although she is much more progressive than you. Well, resilient. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, like I was. Uh, I was fretful. I'm still fretful. I'm a terrible worrier. I worry. Like, and I, I was listening to your interview with Jennifer too. Lawrence. Yeah. I respect how ambitious she is uh-huh. and unapologetic for it. I'm as ambitious, but much more polite. Mm. And I think if I were probably less polite, I'd probably be more successful. How much? What do you mean? What, what, how do you judge success? Well, here's the that's a good question, because (laughs) uh, what I've learned uh, really late in the game and and much after a lot of um, grief and uh, depression Mm -hmm. (laughs) is that success is it's an ever changing landscape. And my folly was my my true downfall for so many years was I had this very, very specific vision of what my success would look like and when it didn't look like that that must have meant i wasn't successful that being the most famous person in the world um i think it was a little more like i'll have the pick of whatever jobs i want i'll win all the awards yeah you know i'll be an egot by the time i'm 24 and that it would fill up all the holes inside and I think what I really learned because I and I was like, I must not be doing it right because it hasn't full, filled up the holes inside made me feel like, well, that must mean you're not that successful, because if you were, then that would have worked. But yeah. of course, you can't reverse engineer it. You can't fill up the inside from the outside. Yeah. You know, I, I, I know this stuff, you know, and I and I know that I because I, I wrestle with that, too. I, I worry I'm. A warrior, I panic. I dread is more. Yes, is, dread. Is, you know, like like the last few days have been very overwhelmed, and I don't quite know why. Not even overwhelmed. Like you know, when all of a sudden you're like, um, "Fuck, I've lived a long life already." And- <laughs> I've been through a lot of stuff, and like you start looking at your hands, sure. and like I'm, it's my vessel's getting older. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a lot of amorphous worry, I find. Yeah, Dread. but, well, but I, yeah, me yeah. too. And yeah. like I, I really tried to figure out like how to stop that because you know being a person in recovery, you know, there's this sort of like do what's in front of you, you know, uh, uh, you know, stay in the present, you know, because like that idea that most of what you're reacting to is your brain is inventing either sure. intentionally or not it's future dwelling yeah and that's or 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 past now uh, right <laughs> you know <laughs> if you're a man so <laughs> yeah, there was a there was a few months there where you're like i didn't do anything wrong did i <laughs> so <laughs> so that but it, it's also just like uh future but it could be as simple as like you know talking to you sure like two hours ago i'd be like oh god what's she gonna be like i was so nervous you were nervous that i would literally be the least interesting person you've had on this iconic podcast how is that possible i don't everybody's pretty interesting (laughs) i've only had a few duds and and even they were okay Do you, you know, because the, the truth is like whatever I think has no bearing on how people are going to react right. to it. Right. But wait, so let's talk about this whole, how did it manifest? I mean, like what was, what was the, the, uh, the illness or the, uh, mm. you know, like throughout your life? Did yeah. Uh, I think, uh, there was a feeling of 
never enoughness. I really suffered from and still do to an extent, but less so, uh, uh, you know, perfectionism. Yeah. And somebody told me recently that there's this saying, I can't, of course I wouldn't know it yeah. because I'm a perfectionist, right. that perfection is the enemy of good. Uh-huh. And huh. I was like, oh. Wow. I never heard oh, that. Oh. Oh. Right. So that, you know, oh, perfection will it, prevent you yeah, from yeah. doing anything signing off on something that's good enough right. right sometimes good enough is enough yeah and what but if you're a perfectionist your your barometer for what perfect is is shifting yes so there's no real precedent there it's just that you know it isn't it that's exactly right and right. you would set the bar high and then you would touch the bar and then you go was but was the bar set high enough and yeah. then you'd set it yet higher. So you're just right. built to beat the shit out of yourself. Yes. It's been <laughs> tough. I got, I've got taken a lot of body hits in my 53, 50, how old am I? 54? 54. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, it's come back a little for me, that beating myself up. And, and there's, you know, uh, there's always a couple of things I could beat myself up about, but I really sh don't need to be. Right. You don't. And yeah. it's a colossal waste of energy. Yeah. And I... You know, I've tried. I've tried meditation. I, uh, I've tried a lot of things and yeah. the sort of you know, self talk and stuff. And yeah. I, I can't say any of it's been hugely successful for me. But I continue to try. Yeah, <laughs> I, I am. I, I do that. I feel that way too. But also, the thing I know about myself is that I know I should do those things, and I'll try them. But I don't stick with them, and then they don't work, and then you're like, "Well, fuck that, right?" But, but, it's, but, but how are they going to work? Doing it, right? How are they going to work twice? <laughs> I don't know. You know exactly, you to, it has to become a practice. It's exactly, as much as you beat yourself up, you then have to do the counter. Otherwise, the beat yourself up will always win. That's right, because then you try things and it doesn't work. Then right. you beat yourself up about that. Because so you, you didn't do it right. Up. Yes. <laughs> but but that means only one thing to me, though, is that there's something about beating ourselves up and being in that zone that is more comfortable than the possibility of not having it. Yes, I do think for me, I have used it as a, a motivating force as though if- But on purpose though? See, like I've, I've said that too, but is it on purpose? I don't think so. I think it's so innate, but there's this deep-seated fear that if I, although nothing in my history suggests that I've ever l dropped the ball and let it roll under the couch, yeah. ever- Right. But maybe today will be that day. And then doing? what? And then I'll just become like this sloppy couch potato and never do anything ever again. That really, you really hardly? Think, really think really? that? No. I don't, I just don't think, no. <laughs> but where's the control th thing? Do you, like, was there chaos? Was there alcoholism in the family? Yes. My father was an alcoholic. Yeah, and yeah. then he got, he got sober when I was 10. And then he fell off the wagon a few years later. And then he got sober again and was sober till the end of his life. So that'll um, do it. Well, you're lucky you didn't yeah. end up boozing. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what... Um, I, I was bulimic for 25 years. That's sort of this... That's, that's oh, my God. Of, so that's a lot. 25? Yeah, from the time I was 14 till... I remember I, when I was... I think I was 39 and thinking, I cannot turn 40 and still be doing this. Oh, my God. So I, I... Trotted myself off to a, an outpatient program at UCLA for 13 months at 39. Uh, okay, yeah, 39, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, you know, basically what it was was group therapy. And one of the things, but one of the things we would do is mm. we had to eat together as a group. And when you have an eating disorder, of course, you, it's very private ritual. 
you you are embarrassed about eating. You don't want people to watch you eat. You, I would never, if I had a meeting with somebody, say, I would never have it over lunch. Yeah. Because I didn't want to eat with a stranger. You know, there's a lot of stuff. And, but were there um, two? But were there two modes of eating, like eating in public and eating alone? Oh, yes. Right. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So you kind of learn how to like eat like a person yes. who eats like a regular person. Yes. And then. You do whatever and, it and is. And not to be afraid of food. Like, food really was the enemy, right? So you you basically learn to kind of defuse those landmines. What do you mean? Um, well... Oh, you mean in treatment? Y- y- yes, yes, oh. in, yes. Because I grew up with an anorexic mother. and oh, and and geez. She's still functioning. Like, I, I talk about it because it's her life is, right. is managing what she wouldn't call an eating disorder. Right. You know, like, uh, right. But, but like, I'm, it's between me and you and the few times I've talked about this on the show, it's my primary fucking sickness right. is my relationship with food. Like, right now, I just took off like 20 pounds <gasps> and on purpose, you know, yeah. work, diet, and everything else. But now, like, you know, if I put on, now I'm on the scales again. Right. It's horrible. So if I, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinner now than I've been almost ever. And it feels great. Like yeah. I love to feel starvy. I like when, like you know, like, <laughs> me like too. I'm and I rarely am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like I'm getting on the scale, and even though I lost twenty pounds, specifically to 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 prepare for being on the set of Glow, because yeah. I didn't because I didn't want to be pudgy because I know I'd eat. But then I just got hooked in the losing of the weight. And now if I put on a half pound, I'm like, oh fuck. Yeah. These pants. It I, absolutely. It's a really vicious, vicious cycle. I'm and by the way, you know. Uh, of course, the scale is the worst metric of how your body is. I know doing, but well, but we're attached to it. Well, so tell me about the like. Okay, tell me about this process where about the redefining your relationship with food. Yeah. Um. Well, so one of the things we had to do was eat together as a group, and that was always really because everyone had a different style. Y- of yeah, sickness. and yes, so some were anorexic, some were bulimic. Um, and so some you were overeaters. I was a binger, but I only binged on sweet things. I Ugh. only binged on cakes, cookies, ice cream, and yeah. things that um, oh, the best. Yeah, and so, and actually, I did a one woman show. <laughs> yeah. 10, 12 years ago. Oh yeah. Yeah, and um, because I wasn't getting any work, right? I saw The Simpsons, but I wasn't getting any work right. outside of that. Right. And I, but it, I, I, but I hadn't been getting any work for a really long time. But you're making a living. You had health care. Absolutely. You had, yeah. You know, it really was the fact that I had the The Simpsons has provided me extraordinary opportunity for choice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The ability to say yes or no to whatever I want. You cannot put a price on that. Yeah. And that really has been the greatest gift of that show plus i really love my character yeah um but i did this one woman show and and at the time i was newly uh recovering from my eating disorder and so i did this i did a like a game show where i would teach you how to binge and purge and Uh um pretty much every night somebody would walk out at that point and my friends who (laughs) I don't know if they're trying to make me feel better or what. They're like, but Yardley, that means you, you moved them. You touched them right. somehow. You made them uncomfortable. Or I'm like, right. So you were you Brutal. were making light of it because you had gone through it. Yes. So there was humor in it for you. 
but it like it probably triggered you know people who were active i guess or they just thought it was disgusting and this is way too personal and what the fuck's wrong with you but that's what a one person show is supposed to be you're supposed yeah. to you know purge yourself at the expense of audiences yes. <laughs> and then you you move through it and decide whether it was a good thing to do right. or not right exactly there's no future for them no really. no there's none 100 percent not <laughs> but you know you, <laughs> I know I've done several, you know, yeah. but there was there there was one that I did that was I was in the middle of uh, divorce and separation that was happening, and I was doing a show about it while it was happening, and I really didn't mean anyone to see it. It was workshopping, which was just sort of like I don't know who else to talk to about this. So <laughs> thanks for coming. Yeah, room full of strangers. This is going to get sad and weird. It's, there's no control. It's still happening. Let's yeah. do it. <laughs> It was terrible. <laughs> but how do you know, like, what? what is, because um, if you, you feel like you've come through it. Yes. And so, because, like, when you brought up binging, like, the, like, I've, like, I got off all the sugar and everything, but, like, I, yeah. I, I like sugar. But fortunately, like, with ice cream and shit, I got a little, little slight cholesterol problem, so I'm, like, I'm afraid to die. Right. <laughs> but, um, but, like, the other night, I had, like, a, a, a relatively healthy cookie. Yeah. And because someone brought them over, Mandy Moore brought me fucking cookies. Wow, four of them from nice. Amara, which oh. are the with those health. Uh. <laughs> so like I'm like I can't do it, and I put them in the freezer. And then the other night I ate one, and I'm like, oh god damn it! <laughs> and then I'm like, I got it. You know, it took everything I had. Yeah, not to. It took my girlfriend going like, don't eat another one. I'm like, you don't know. <laughs> you, you don't know understand the, how good it would feel. <laughs> Right? Right. Well, so, there there were many things. So is it worth five minutes of satisfaction for three days of beating, your, beating the shit out of yourself? Well, that's a good question for, for anything or sure. a lifetime of yeah. shame. Yes. A hundred percent. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and sometimes that works. But, uh, you know, mostly you, I just learned to, I mean, I think we journaled and so you had to write about here's what I feel like when I can't binge and purge you know for me i think it was it really i remember i used to get sort of high right it was when you ate yeah it was this there was a a catharsis you would get high and then you would sort of level out you flatline so that you didn't feel anything that was really Uh, the mo right yeah, yeah and um and now I just don't, like, I don't keep ice cream in the freezer because that was a huge trigger for me. Right. I really like ice cream, but Oof. there's other things I can have that I like just as well, and that's fine. Like what? Um, I love cake. Oh, you can yeah, have cake. I'm a big fan of cake. Yeah. <laughs> See, <laughs> my mother's style is she buys the ice cream, she'll wake up in the middle of the night and eat a bunch of it, and then throw it away. Right. And so there's always a situation where it's sort of like, like a family member tells a story about, you know, we had a party at the house once and they came over the next day and there was a chocolate cake the night before and he was looking forward to having a piece. And when he walked into the house, my mother was jamming it down the garbage disposal so she wouldn't eat it. Sure. She fed the garbage disposal much better than she fed, (laughs) I think, her family. The garbage disposal got the best stuff. Right. But that's her way, you know, well, there's, it's darker than that in a way. Yeah. But she's okay. She's healthy. But, you know, it just is what it is, that relationship with food. Well, in food, you have to face food every day, usually multiple that's right. times. My ex, one of my yeah. ex-wives used to say, like, you, because like, we, we met in recovery, mm. and she was like, look, with food, you know, you, you, you have to eat. Yeah. You know, it's not like you, their abstinence is not an option. Right. So you've got to redefine your relationship with that thing. Yes, you do. Yeah. Yeah. 
But did you waste? Did you go to the uh, like um, OA and stuff or that kind of? Stuff? I just went to that um, the treatment. That yeah, was it. Yeah, oh, good. yeah. That's good that you got and over then, it. I, but I do remember I used to have dreams about binging. Yeah, you know when I was abstaining from it. Yeah, and then and of course it wasn't. I went to that program and then I was perfect. And thirteen months later, I'm like, hooray! I'm cured. There would be two steps forward, one back, and then. Got out of the program, and there would still be two steps forward, one back. And, right, right. Um, but you look good, and you, so, you seem well. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's been a really now it's been a solid. I don't know, five or six years. I think. Since yeah. I I no longer have the terror of food. Right. That I used to. Right. So. The terror because you can't control yourself around it, basically. Yes, because I it was it was it sort of became this monster. Yeah. I remember, you know, it would. I felt like I didn't have any power over it, I right, guess. Right. I, I couldn't control the it. Control, right? Right, I couldn't control right. my reaction to it. Right. And if I was having a bad day, I would reward myself with yeah. something that would invariably contr- lead to right. the and, bad behavior. And you're a controlly right. person. Yeah. So that yeah. and the only way you could control it was after the fact in a very right. messy, yes. not socially wonderful way. <laughs> not socially wonderful at all. <laughs> it was not a group activity. <laughs> Sad private activity. Sad, sad. <laughs> because that's what people say, that eating disorders are primarily control things. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, I know that anorexia is anorexia, anorexia is yeah. that, but I didn't, like, bulimia, I guess, is too, but it's, it's sort of like an after-the-fact thing. Yes. Like, you like you know, I can do this right. and still win. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But no one the, can watch the me. The winning is not a track. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> and, you know, I was actually at my heaviest when I was bulimic. Right. Because you can't consume 4,000 calories and then expect that there will be no consequences, (laughs) even if you barf it all up. (laughs) It's not going to work that way. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're you're better. Thank you. And this is always fascinating (laughs) to me about, about, about cartoons and animated characters is that, you know, you have this life. It's an emotional life mm. of personal struggle and, and whatever you are. And, you know, that, whether the script, you know, implies it or not, informs Lisa. Yes. You know, and, I, and I've, I'm, I've always been fascinated with that because I knew a guy years ago who was an out-of-control drug addict monster. Mm. But he did voices for cartoons. And I'm like, this guy's going into the heads of kids? You know? <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, like in my mind, it's like even if it's scripted and it's cute and it's funny and it's a bear, sure, it's still that fucking monster. <laughs> you know, and I don't know if that plays, but I would assume it was. And you're fortunate that 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 Lisa has gone through her own evolution. You know, with with her own uh, morality and, and political causes and, and yes. personal habits, but it's always been evolving in a good direction. Yes, but I have to assume that your tenor and your heart connected to how you talk is is part of the appeal of the thing. I think so. I, I, I always say I'm actually only 33 and a third percent of the success right. of that character. Um, the writers really lay a foundation that is just second to none. Yeah. And they actually always often say that Lisa is them. They work out all of their childhood sure. angst through that character. Yeah. So I'm carrying a pretty heavy load, people. It's <laughs> a lot of responsibility. It feels just like, you know, generations of aggravated yes. Jewish men. Through this little eight-year-old girl. I don't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's that. They're not just Jews who write, and they're not just men. You have women, men, we have of all few, religions. We have few women, actually. They are mostly men. Yeah. Yeah, which is interesting that they would connect so easily to Lisa Simpson. But I think, you know, my theory is, anyway, that they're all so, they're all the smartest guy in the room right. since the time they were seven. Right. And right. so anytime you do something that sets you apart from your peer group, I think it creates... Yeah, fuck that guy. He's a know, weirdo. Exactly. <laughs> and it can be really isolating. Oh, and yeah. And you don't know where you fit in, and you feel like an outcast. And so I that element of Lisa Simpson, I think, is what's most familiar to them. It's a heavy load. It processors. is a heavy load, dude. <laughs> these, these poor, nerdy, smart yeah. guys. <laughs> are relying on me. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> you might want to <laughs> make sure your life preservers you're still a, works. You're a vessel. <laughs> I'm a vessel. A, a vessel of the <laughs> of the sort of you know, cynical, broken-hearted closet cases. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's nice. It's good. But but where did you did you train to be an actress? No, I didn't train. No. No. Did you study? No. Really? Yeah. You, you didn't go to college and you just got on Broadway? How does that happen? Um, it's a good story, actually. So I did. I had this great plan. Then I started doing uh, school plays. Although, well, in when high I was, school. Uh, junior high school. Yeah. Um, but before that, actually, there was a woman in my neighborhood in Washington, D.C., who had a little one a single car garage that in the summer she used to turn into a theater and she uh-huh. would get all the kids in the neighborhood. And we would we didn't actually put on plays, but we would she would gather us all together and dress us up in all these costumes. I don't know where she got them. And we would lip sync to things like Fiddler on the Roof and Sound of Music. Yeah. And we would also do living portraits. And so, you know, a living portrait is you are, they, you look like the portraits. Yeah. Right? You, so I was this painting by Mary right. Cassatt. Okay. A little girl in a straw hat. So I wore this gray frock and I had a straw hat. And yeah. then I would stand there and the curtain would come back. And my, I remember my knees were knocking before the curtain was pulled back. Yeah. And then as soon as the light hit me, my knees stopped knocking. Yeah. And oh, I wow. thought, oh, oh, <laughs> this is, well, this is clearly where I need to be. Ah. And then I started to form this plan, right? That I was. You felt uh, a yeah. scene. Yes. Yeah. I did. And I think I felt. Um, I, I, there must have been a, a measure of control. There was, you know, one of the things I loved about, I started out doing theater, yeah. was I always knew what was going to happen. So as oh, a future dweller, uh, interesting. that was really um, pleasing. Yeah. <laughs> so even if the ending was sad and bad, I could prepare for it because yeah. I knew what was coming. I never, I know, I, I think maybe one other person has talked about that in that way. That makes such sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I for felt two hours. Really, exactly. Yeah. I'm completely safe. Yeah. Right. And um, so I did these school plays and I was a huge hit. And while I was doing that, I also would look in the newspaper and go and audition for things around town. Mm-hmm. One of the things I auditioned for when I was 14 years old was yeah. um, a play. I didn't know it was a plagiarized version of Peter Pan, but it yeah. turned out to be that. A plagiarized version? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At uh, a dinner theater out in Arlington, Virginia, uh-huh. right across the Potomac. Uh-huh. And I played Tinkerbell, and I was bigger than all of the Lost Boys. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I, I would get, I got paid $50 a week, I yeah. remember, which was more money I'd ever made in my life. And about the third week, my check started to bounce. And there was often more people on stage than in the audience, and it wasn't a very big cast. Right. And, um, but I remember thinking that 
It's okay. My soon the checks won't bounce, Were and you I on don't a care wire? about that anyway. Yeah, I was on a wire, which, uh, and I was wearing this really heavy, not at all invisible leather harness uh-huh. on this wire, and the wire was on a like a chain that you could pull a tractor trailer behind, right. and it would go like, <laughs> and you're just like stopping there? and starting. So you're yeah, rocking. I am singing my solo, <laughs> and then the harness broke one night, oh, and I God. sort of like boink. Slipped out one side and uh, scary. Yeah, no, not really. I wasn't that far from the ground, but it was hilarious. But I remember, and then one night I showed up. So that so what I didn't know was they were going under, which is why my the paychecks light, right. were bouncing. And one night I showed up to do the show. Yeah, and uh, actually at that point I was I had stayed on and I was doing the Three Musketeers, but I was playing a little old Italian man named Concini. Yeah. <laughs> in in gold lame pants and a red tunic and a little black curly wig yeah, yeah horrible yeah. and um anyway showed up to work and and the theater was closed and on the door was a there was a notice from the health department and a notice from the irs and nobody called to tell me that my mother didn't have to bring me oh, wow. to work that night That's so nice. so she had to explain it to you uh, <laughs> i pretty i caught on pretty quick you're like 14 I <laughs> yeah guess, yeah so it wasn't and so I, but I do remember thinking I still loved it. And yeah. if I still loved it after all that, I probably really loved it. Yeah. And so in the course of the next couple of years, I auditioned at a theater in Washington, D.C. called New Playwrights Theater. And it was an actual theater. Like, a, it was a good, legit theater. I would audition for them once in a while. And, of course, I would never get it because I was too young. But right after I graduated, they rang me up, actually, and they said... Yardley, how come you didn't come and audition for this musical comedy review? And I yeah. said, oh, I, I don't know. I was graduating. I just didn't see it. So they said, please come. So I went and I got it. And it was sketch comedy. Yeah. And so we, I played Little Orphan Annie in a sketch about Annie. I played uh, Cheetah in a sketch about Tarzan and Jane. Sure. And I got these reviews like... It like your mother would write. Yeah, your mother. They who, loved you. You were hilarious. I mean, unbelievable. And because of that, they literally went on for paragraphs, which hasn't ever happened since. By These the are way. comedic roles. Yes, obviously. Yes, yeah. uh, I got an audition at Arena Stage. Now, Arena was the best, you know, theater in town that wasn't that didn't have bus and truck shows, right? So it wasn't like the Kennedy Center. Yeah, they book in the Broadway shows, sure, uh, or the National Theater does, but. Arena had an actual resident company at the uh-huh. time, and uh, but they cast everything out of New York, and so it was very unusual that they would dip into the local pool. Yeah, and they called me up, and uh, I went and auditioned for a Tom Stoppard play, and I got the part. And uh, although I do remember, they said to me, the casting director at the yeah. time said, "You know, really." the reason we hired you is because you're so inexpensive uh-huh. because nice. I wasn't um, a member of the union equity yeah. at that time. And how old were you then? Uh, 17. Yeah. And so this is actually great. This will tie back to your um, to your world. While I was at Arena, I yeah. did a reading of a play by Lewis Black. Oh, yeah. Yeah, called yeah. Hitchin. Uh-huh. And we he loved me in that reading, and we ended up doing that production at a theater in Ohio at this, it was called Kenyon Festival Theater at Kenyon College. Yeah. And everybody else in that show was from New York, and so all their agents came. I got an agent. I moved to New York two weeks after that show closed, and six weeks later, I was auditioning for Mike Nichols to be in the real thing. And did you get it? 
I did, but what they didn't tell me when I auditioned was that I was actually auditioning to understudy Cynthia Nixon in oh, the yeah. role of the daughter. Uh-huh. And I remember when I got it, they told me that it was for the understudy. I'm like, what? The f- no, no. Oh, fuck no. I am. I did not come all the way here to be an understudy. And my agent was like, what is, who the, Who are you? You are going to sit down and shut up and pay attention. <laughs> Learn those lines. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. Did you ever have to step in? I never, I well, I didn't have to step in because she was sick, but Mike Nichols, um, we opened on Broadway in 1984, January 84. And Jeremy Irons and Gwen Close were in that play, and Peter Gallagher and Christine Baranski and wow, yeah. everybody. I mean, it was a big, big deal. And uh, Cynthia. And so Mike Nichols pulled her out of the real thing after only three months in the run and put her in his production of Hurley Burley. Oh, right. She played the and teenage so, girl. Yeah. yeah. So I got to take over the role, and that was a huge break for me. But what I didn't know was that understudies almost never take over a role. Uh-huh. You can make an entire career out of being an understudy yeah. if you're reliable and you know the lines. And and I was if I had known that, I've, I mean, I don't, I would have just imploded. Right. Right. What? Yeah. Again, like fuck that noise. Yeah. I am not doing that. So to be able to do it with the original cast, and then I actually stayed on and did it with the cast that changed over. Wow. Um, that was huge. It was huge, and I also in that time those. Two and a half years in New York, I did three movies, and um, I did an after-school special, and I was really successful in the beginning. <laughs> no, <you're, laughs> and everything is going. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I know it's terrible, um, but, but it, things were going sort of the way I had planned. And I do remember when I turned twenty years old, thinking, "You better keep this trajectory up, yeah, because in a couple of years, everybody will have ex- everybody will." expect you to have accomplished all that you have accomplished so you better not slack off. everybody you mean everybody in your head yeah i think so in well my, i mean well what head. were your parents doing were they like into their own worlds or were they supportive or uh they... well my father so my parents split up when yeah. I, you know when i was on broadway um my 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 mother was she came to everything yeah. she was really supportive my father i didn't he wasn't around much when we were growing up yeah um and so it really wasn't until actually that review in the washington post and the washington yeah. times his when, paper yeah when yeah. people started coming up to him going oh you're yardley smith's father yeah that he really sort of went oh oh yeah are you are you doing a thing here right right oh right. yeah and people so, are complimenting me yes so i should know you. what yeah yeah mm-hmm. So everything's going great in New York, and then you come out to L.A., and you're, are you kicked in the pants, or uh, what? It's, it was funny when I came to L.A. I had, had had all this success in New York, and there was definitely the attitude of, so fucking what? Now yeah. you got to prove yourself in a different way here, oh, that, right? Right. You didn't. It wasn't um, like, I'm going to go out there, and everyone's going to love me. You were uh, like, no, I thought that, of course. Yeah. And then they, <laughs> they said, you got a thing or two to learn. Right. Um, and so, but I was game. I was yeah. like, fuck you. I, all right. I got you. And I looked so, so young when I was, if I moved out here in 85-ish, so I was like 21. Yeah. I looked like I was 12. And so I could play everybody's daughter, niece, sister, you yeah, name yeah. it. And I worked like gangbusters. I came out, I I got a pilot, 
the pilot didn't go, but then I did a bunch of guest spots. I did, um, I continued to do movies. And in 86, I think, is when we started to do The Simpsons For, on the Tracy Allman yeah, show. Yeah, Tracy Allman, yeah. And um, I remember thinking, I don't, what the fuck is this job? I don't give a sh-. Like, voiceover yeah. wasn't part of my plan for right. world domination. So right. I really had no interest. I'd put no eggs in that basket, none. It probably Um, didn't even seem like a living at that point, in a way. It didn't. And and at that time, it wasn't, you know, it was was pre-scale. It was, you know, whatever it it was. It was pre-cartoon world domination. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So So you just did the Tracy Ullman bits, the sketches. Yeah, and you and met I with would, Matt and I did. He would write. Uh, he wrote all those scripts, and, and we didn't see a lot of uh, James L. Brooks. What about Sam? <clears throat> Sam would come up, but Sam really became much more a presence uh, when we went to Half Hour. Uh huh. And I interviewed him before he passed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was wild. He he was such a. I was happy that he became. He found his calling with the animals. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, you know he was. He he didn't. At least when I knew him, he didn't seem to enjoy his success as much as he should, Is considering it? how much success he was having. Yeah. Well, I mean, you it know. seems to be all of our problems. <laughs> it does. What are we going to do about that, Mark? <laughs> okay, i got to find my animals. <laughs> yes. So you have cats. I know. i got three cats. I have two that's, cats. That's the extent of my philanthropy with yeah. the animals. <laughs> I also donate money to a, a tiger rescue operation in North Carolina. Oh, fabulous. It's kind of wild. It's in North They're Carolina. They're rescuing actual tigers? Yeah, like domestic wildcats. Right. Because people can buy tigers and they think they're cute and, and then, then all of a sudden they're living with a monster. They're 300 pounds yeah. or more. Yeah, so they get them, pounds. They get them from like zoos, like crappy zoos or roadside attractions or people that yeah. accumulate. But yeah, you go out there and you can go see them and everything and they yeah. just they just kind of take care of these cats. <laughs> I love that. And I, I don't know, I've been there a few times. How did you find them? Yeah, North Carolina Tiger Rescue. So, well, I was doing a show out there and someone said, you know, you're a cat guy, you should go... Go out there and look at the Carolina Tiger Rescue. What are you talking about? You go out there, there's fucking you know, lions and do you, tigers. Do you and, get to roam with them? No. <laughs> you, <laughs> no but they have nice environments and they're fed yeah. well and the people there are good hearted and it's a very it's a very specific niche. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Finding people call them up and go like we just there were two tiger cubs in this shed. Oh, Can Jesus. you come get them? God. It's, like, it's crazy. That's brutal. That's horrible. All right, so okay, so Omen happens, but you did what well, you were a regular on a few sitcoms, right? Or- yeah. Uh, well, Herman's Head, I was a regular, and then I remember that show was one of the first sitcoms on Fox, right, along with Married with Children and Simpsons. Right. And I remember I was doing both at the same time, The Simpsons and Herman's Head. I was never happier because I was completely slammed. Yeah. You know, schedule right. wise. Right. And um, and I remember, and I was a what they guess what they would call a breakout character on that show i was on herman's head yeah yeah played louise fitzer and hank was on that show too yeah yeah and um so when that show got canceled after three seasons i remember thinking well this is phenomenal i have some real momentum i'll be able to of course just migrate to another show and that didn't happen and that was really around the time when things started to slow down considerably yeah i did after that get a recurring role on Dharma and Greg, where I played Greg's crabby secretary, Marlene. Yeah. But you know the business was changing, and I, and I didn't, I didn't know how to 
adapt. I don't know that there is anything I could have done. So I would say it was sort of um, the perfect storm where you had now movie stars were wanting to do television because television sort of recognized if we do limited series like they do in Britain, for instance, just 10 episodes like you do with Glow, right? Right. 12 episodes, then we can get these massive names because they'll commit to four months, but they won't commit to nine months, which is a regular 22 season, 22 episode season. Right. And also the the quality, uh, you know, because directors are coming too. I think The Sopranos changed a lot. For, yes, for, I agree. You know, like I totally all of a sudden agree. like, oh, wow, this is TV. It's yeah. Like, it's amazing. And it really changed the landscape of it. And mm-hmm. so I wasn't enough of... As I was just like I was like a really solid working actor, right? Right, who you could always count on. But I wasn't a name, and so if you're going to get a movie star to be the star, now the person who used to star in television is going to be the best friend, and the person who used to play the best friend, who was me, is now going to play the friend of the friend. If there is a friend of a friend, right. you know what I mean? And then, there and was then, a trickle a trickle down. Then all of a sudden you're a clerk, and now exactly, <laughs> and I mean literally, right? Where you're reading for yeah. a page, right? And I always say it really isn't about the size of the part, but if the part is, if it's not the best one page in the script, or if there isn't something that is really special about it, if anybody who's actually fluent in the English language could read these lines, then do it. Yeah. yeah, then fuck it. Like, how long do you have to be in the business before you acquire enough um, equity in order to A, not have to read for one page and B, actually get to do something that you feel like, yes, I've actually I've paid my dues, I work my ass off, I love my job, let's do this. Right. right? Well, oddly, you know, from, you know, even, you know, A-list people, they got to read too. Yes. I mean, it's like, it's not easy, like, it's weird. There's such an abundance. Yes. And, and, and like I said, I don't, I, I don't mind reading, but let's, let's make respect it, me a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. Like make it something worthwhile, right, right, right. You just want it to be. So, th- work really, really started to dry up, and I couldn't. The problem was, I, I stopped even getting auditions, mm. and so if I can't get the opportunity. And I didn't know, because I'd never had to, I didn't know how to make opportunities for myself. Right. And I didn't want to. You know, at that time, it was really starting to become clear that you had to be this multi-hyphenate. You had to be actor, writer, director, actor, producer, writer. You had to, yeah. couldn't just be an actor anymore. Right. And I didn't want to do those other things. And so I kind of dug my heels in, and it was not smart. And I, I a solid six, seven years passed where I was like, what the fuck is happening? Is I didn't know. And that's when I did my one woman. Show, show right, right? That's, that's usually the art exactly of that. where you're like <laughs> i'm gonna all right you. i will i'll do it and then i thought it was directed by judith ivy who's an amazing actress She's and was actress, a phenomenal yeah. director and i thought this will get me more work more work and of course it didn't um i did get a f- great review in the new york times for it um but that it was too late and so after that i ended up a couple years later, I fired my agent who I'd had for 22 two years, and then I couldn't get an agent. But the, but the weird thing is, is like you, you tell this story, but all, as all this is going on, you're on The Simpsons. Yes, thank God. And, and But the weird thing is, is because I feel it too, is like when I get an animated, when they want me to come do one, like as a guy, I'm not an, a real actor though, in the sense I didn't spend my life trying to do that, but you still sort of think like, oh, this is a nice perk. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll go do a voice <laughs> on a thing, right? So I think that as an actor, 
there's some part of your brain that always thinks about it like that. Like, you know, yeah, I do the animated thing, but what about the, the real yes. thing? Well, again, if you don't, if, if voiceover isn't even part of your plan, right, for world domination and what you will consider right. successful, when you get the voiceover, of course, it doesn't count. Right. It doesn't carry the weight that it actually could and should. Well, when, when did it start to do that? Yesterday? No. <laughs> on your way over? Yeah, on my way over. Because like like we I said earlier by all you know, you do have world domination and you guys <laughs> like through whatever you know, victories you had with contract disputes, you you clearly are set for, you know, a few lifetimes. Yes. And you know, what's sad to me about that and even at the small level that I have made some money as of late in the last decade, is that you never want to believe that money's not going to make it all go be better. It's, right. It, well, you don't it, want to believe that. When you don't have money, you're like, you're out of your fucking mind. Sure. If I had money, <laughs> you, you know, it is a big thing off the table. Like, to not Absolutely. have to worry about that. It gives you freedom of choice. Right, but then you realize that, like, you know, oh, my, well, great, I have freedom of choice, but how come my choices are still limited to these nine dumb things that I'm always <laughs> circling, and I've never, st- like, how, how is the inner Well, it dive? doesn't fill up the hole. I know, right? but- It doesn't, I don't think it takes the questioning away. But what is that? Is, is it really questioning or is it just sort of this dumb commitment to discomfort? I mean, what the fuck? Life is short. We're both around <laughs> the same age. Like I'm forgetting more things that I'm, I'm uh, you know, than I'm learning. Yeah. And like a lot of things that were so important at, at another time in my life just don't. They're not anymore. So like, why is it that I can't just like, you know, sit with myself without feeling guilty about it or wondering, uh, you know, like, is this it? Right. Like, should I be doing something else? And like, is this living? And I think that's what I mean when I say oftentimes I don't feel successful. Yeah, I know. I, I get it. You, you know, know, but it's, that it's something much more internal than the forward facing Yardley who is embodies this iconic character on this extraordinary show. Right. But, but that like, was the only barometer. Yes. Hooray. We took the I, box. I guess what I'm all of a sudden having issue with is the idea that it's <laughs> <laughs> we're having a revelation here that. <laughs> That it's actually a whole. I don't know if it's a whole. I think it's a sad existential realization that, you know, life is just what it is. It's 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 fleeting. And there is as a control freak, you know, like there is an end. You don't know when it's going to happen. And, you know, is it supposed to feel like this? There's nothing written anywhere that it's not disappointing. Right. Yet, yeah, for some reason, people in their, you know, in this sort of as we evolve in this culture of narcissism believe that this entitlement should at least yield us an amazing feeling yes right yes and, but but the truth is is that like if you look at the history of human beings writing things down and doing things the struggle for meaning and for it not to be sort of a letdown is eternal yes but yet for some reason we're gonna we're gonna say we have these holes i don't know if it's a hole i think it's just the nature of being a person it feels like a hole to me. I guess, but other people, but we're just those kind of people. Yes. You know, we're, we're, whatever, our, we're emotionally hobbled for some reason and we can't find <laughs> satisfaction right. in the things that other people find satisfaction. Isn't, isn't that, a, it feels like a massive failing, doesn't it? No. It doesn't? No, like, like I'm- See, I'm, that makes me feel like, well, Yardley, you're fucking obviously not doing it right. You're just not looking at it right, maybe. <laughs> like, I'm 55 and I have no children. And I've been married twice. Yeah. And now I'm talking to guys my age that, that have kids who are in their 20s now. And they're like, dude, you dodged a bullet. And I'm like, you know, like, I'm like, 
you know, like I did something right in my life. You know, like like now that whole part of that the the idea of what you're supposed to have done, I'm sort of like, no, I made it through the tunnel. You know, I made yeah. it through, and I'm on the other side of it, and I don't feel any regret about that. Right, nor do I. So that's so it's a victory. Yes, we're we're all alone with our head. That's right. So now we just got. There's just a lot of noise in the head. That's all. What can you do? I don't know. Accept it. <laughs> right? I do. I know. I do. But I mean, do you? I got out of the house, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're you're not secretly throwing up in a bathroom. That's right. Everything's working out. It's all good. And you can you can buy things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, but do you find over the course of doing Lisa? That you know, in in dealing with these great writers and do and 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 sort of watching that that character grow, have you learned from that? You know anything about life? You know, in the sense that, like, in your relatability to that character. Yes. I mean, did, did, were there life lessons that you processed from that, other than that had to do with the job? Yes. I am inspired by. Lisa Simpson's resilience. I'm inspired by her optimism. Yeah. And I do think that playing that character has softened some of my sharper edges. Yeah. You know, I... Um, and the responsibility of being on a show that is that iconic and embodying a character that seems to mean a great deal to an enormous number of people. Yeah. I feel like... Um, there, in that is a tremendous privilege, and with that comes the responsibility to um, carry that with graciousness and, um, to 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 your point, to receive people yeah. who w- w- need to express to you what you've meant to them. Yeah, I never take that lightly, and I, it's sort of to whom much is given, much is expected, and I and I respect that, and I accept that. Well, that's good. <laughs> That's a good thing in yes, life. Yes. Well, it was great talking to you. Oh, thanks. Can I plug my podcast? Of course. Oh, yeah. How's that going? How many have you done? Uh, we we have uh, forty nine episodes. Oh my so god! Far. So it's been going a long time. It's only it's actually only been sixteen months. Oh, so you you banked a bunch and you're just kind of dropping. Well, them? we do about twelve or fourteen per season. Uh huh. And we're about to launch season four on March the fifteenth. What's it called again? It's called Small Town Dicks. It's a true crime podcast. Oh, okay. And I co-host it with my best friend and co-creator, Zibby Allen, and two identical twin detectives, Dan and Dave. They're and, real, uh, pe- real detectives? Yeah. And all of our cases are told by the detectives who investigated them. And is it, is it a scripted thing? From no. The, oh. It's amazing. And so Zibby and I actually do very little talking. We're the audience. We get to ask all the questions that you would if oh, you had great. the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's... And we, our premise was... Big time crime is happening in small town USA yeah. all over. Right. And with the same level of depravity and disregard for human life as in big cities, but just with less frequency. Right. But to And people hear that might these, know each other. And there's a real claustrophobia in uh, that aspect right. of it, right? You right. drive down the street and you go, oh, I went to school with that guy. I also arrested him and he's, you know, right. blah, blah, blah. I just had that this morning. I read an article in, in Albuquerque. They've been there 10 years ago. They found like 11 bodies yeah. buried on the West Mesa. And I'm like, I probably went to high school with that guy. Oh, my God. I don't know who it is, but that was my first thought. <laughs> right. I was like, I wonder if I knew the guy that killed him. Right. Because it's a cold case, I guess. Yes, it is. Right. So I'm really, really, really proud of it. and um, That's great. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. 
So look, you're doing like a, your own thing. I always do my own thing. But this is like what I mean by your own thing is like once you get through and you you kind of move through the one person show thing that I know that feeling yeah. of like I have to make something happen. And as performers and as me as a comic who was not doing great at comedy and at the time I did some of the one man shows, like you're like this is really going to be my own thing but the form itself you know it, it has become a redundancy so yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. it's problematic but you don't realize it when you're in it and you're not even sure what you want out of it you know other than the recognition and to process this stuff and to be to really fuel that creative fire right you know and then you do that and it sort of frees you up to know that you can do that but it's nice to land on something that you know you 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 like have to refill and it's yours yes. and and you, you know you have control over it yeah, it's great. But hopefully some of your listeners listeners will enjoy, if they're true crime fans. It seems to be very popular now. It really it is. It always is kind of popular, actually. It is. I feel market. like, for me, I what I like about, what interests me about true crime is that it's it's about trust. Yeah. You know, society can't function if we don't all adhere to a certain set of rules and values that we actually value yeah and so who are these people who are willing to throw all that out the window the president derail the train well there's that guy (laughs) fucking hell dude and so i like to know that there's also a force bigger than me that can put the train back on the track and for me that's um these detectives well and that's a that and and that as a metaphor is is you know the the nature of uh, hope in a democracy yeah it is isn't it yeah (laughs) All right, great, great, great Thank talking you. to you. Likewise. What a great conversation. I love her. And she gave me that little uh, little uh, Lisa pin, which I'll cherish. So, folks, don't forget, I'm the guest star on The Simpsons this Sunday, February 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox. The episode is called The Clown Stays in the Picture, and you'll see my full WTF interview with Krusty the Clown on that show. Uh, in the animated version, of course, of this garage. So uh, I, I, I got to play something special on the guitar, don't I? I do. <laughs>